Ann Worley, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Woo! Be quiet! Live from New York, it's Saturday night! Ed Robertson welcoming you back to TV Confidential a radio talk show about television is pleased to welcome one of the funniest men in show business today, Emmy Award-winning writer-producer Alan Zweibel. Alan was not only one of the original writers of Saturday Night Live, where he wrote for Gilda Radner, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, and the rest of the not-ready-for-prime-time players. He has also written for such comedy legends as Steve Martin, Billy Crystal, Gary Shandling, John Lovitz, Larry David, and Martin Short. Alan Zweibel, welcome to TV Confidential. Thanks for having me. I understand that you first became interested in writing for comedy as a result of watching the Dick Van Dyke Show. Oh, yeah. I, I think that a lot of guys my age, um, I'm 87 now, <laughs> uh, a, lot of guys, a lot of my contemporaries, I think that they would tell you the same thing. I remember I was about uh, 12 years old, and I was sitting home watching TV, and the Dick Van Dyke show comes on. I'm watching with my parents, and I'm looking at the TV, and I see this guy who's sort of nice looking and uh, has a very pretty wife and a family and a really nice house in New Rochelle, New York. And he spends his day at the office lying on a couch making jokes with Buddy and Sally. And I looked at my parents, and I went, I think I'd like to do that. That looks sort of fun. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I, I just uh, fell in love with the thought of spending my life writing uh, jokes and scripts and uh, for TV and Broadway and books and movies, and I've been really lucky to have been able to do all those things. I understand that your first paid professional gig as a writer, Alan, I understand you got paid per laugh. Well, <laughs> well it wasn't billed that way. <laughs> I, I, got, I got paid per joke. Okay, okay. But somebody really paying me if it got a laugh. Okay, so I got seven dollars a joke. I was paid. I, I, I fresh out of college, I started writing for stand-up comedians who live and work. I should say up in the Catskill Mountains, yeah. and I used to play in those hotels and all those nightclubs that were up there. And um, I would write jokes for them, and uh, they were like twice my age. You know, I'm 21, right out of college. Mm-hmm. They're 40 and 45, and it was like writing for my parents' friends, you know. It was, like, boring, you know, like jokes about paving the driveway, you know. And I'm going, oh, God. And, but what I would do is I'd send them jokes, and then I'd take my parents' car from Long Island, and I'd go all the way up there uh, to the Catskills, which was about a 100-mile drive, and sit in the back of the uh, nightclub, watch them do my jokes, and, uh, you know, see if they got laughs or not. How did it feel the first time someone delivered a joke that you wrote that got a laugh? How did how did it feel uh, for you knowing that? Well, it was an amazing feeling because I think that any writer is very curious as to whether or not uh, he ha- he or she has anything to offer. You know, it's one thing to make your friends laugh, your family laugh, but if you write something and it's delivered by somebody who's a professional. Mm-hmm and they get a laugh with it, it is a validation there that goes, wow, maybe I can do this for a living, you know, uh, because you don't know. There's that mystery and there's an insecurity as to whether or not you're fooling yourself. So it was uh, an elated feeling, 
And at the same time, I'm going, wow, who knows? Maybe I can parlay this into a, a, a life. You mentioned that you first became interested in the concept of writing comedy as a result of watching Dick Van Dyke. Did you ever think about uh, performing comedy as a stand-up? Well, no. It, it didn't interest me to be, a, to be a performer. It didn't interest me to be a stand-up. I did do it for a little while after I got bored writing jokes to the guys who were twice my age. I took the jokes they wouldn't buy from me because it, they, they didn't buy it because they said it wasn't for the, their crowd, and mm -hmm. it wasn't. It was for a younger crowd, so I took all the jokes they wouldn't buy from me, and I made it into a stand-up act for myself. And there were two clubs in New York City at the time. One was called Catch a Rising Star, and the other was The Improvisation. And that's where people who were my age, maybe a little bit older, were guys like Richard Pryor and Willie Tomlin, my friend Larry David, Billy Crystal, they were all starting out. And, well, Pryor and Willie had already moved on. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about Billy and Larry, who are still my best friends today. They were just starting. And this is where agents and managers came to look at new talent. So I got on stage there and just delivered jokes, hoping that somebody would come in and uh, like the material and maybe want to represent me as a writer or maybe give me a job as a writer and one night, Lauren Michaels came in, and he saw me. And uh, he was looking for writers for this new show called Saturday Night Live that was going to premiere in the fall. And I had a meeting with him, and uh, I showed him a, a portfolio of all the jokes I had written, up to, you know, that I thought were the best jokes I had written. There were about 1,100 of them. And he liked it, and he gave me a job on that new show. We're talking to Alan Zweig Bell, Emmy Award-winning writer-producer, one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live, and the author of Bunny Bunny, the story of Alan's 14-year friendship with Gilda Radner, which began on Saturday Night Live. Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are also with us. We hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When did you guys first realize that Saturday Night Live was not just another writing gig, not just another TV show? When did you realize that you were doing something special? Well, you know, that's a great question, but it's hard to answer as to what we were feeling at the time. This was everyone's first job. It was my first job. I was 24. You know, uh, Franken was 23. Tom Davis, I think, was the same age as Franken. The writers were, you know, we were all... In our early to mid-twenties, you know, the oldest one might have been Chevy, who was like 31 or 32. Lorne was 31. But Lorne had worked in TV before. Everybody else had not, for the most part. So, this is, we thought this is the way television worked. You know, we thought that, oh, you wrote something on Tuesday, you got on television on Saturday. Oh, the only credo that we had, well, it's a, let's just make each other laugh, and if we make each other laugh, we'll put it on TV. And that's what we did, you know. Um, that was our only barometer. And, yeah, I mean, look, we knew it was something special because it became, you know, started becoming popular, you know. But I, we spent so much time in those offices that it was only when we left, left the show or even over the summers, 
when we had a hiatus when other people that were uh, using our catchphrases and we saw posters and, and, and you know, I, Gilda and I started doing college uh, lectures. Mm-hmm. I think the second year of the show and I did, you know, and I did some myself and, but, you know, and you would get an applause when I said I wrote Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. And, but, and, and so it was very gratifying, but I didn't know anything else. Uh, I had no idea that this was such an anomaly. You know, like I said, I knew the show was popular. We started winning Emmys, and the cast started be, uh, on the covers of magazines. So I knew it was huge. But I didn't know the difference between... Uh, I thought that's, that's just what television was, quite frankly. It was only when I left, and I, re- I cre- co-created a show called the Gary Shalick Show. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Be- between, between the years that I left SNL, which was 80... I think we started Scary Shailing Show around 86 or 87. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly when. It was those intervening years when I started writing for the theater and started writing books and did a few specials. But I had a little time to breathe. So I went, wow, look at this. Look what we did. Do you know what I mean? But I didn't realize that this was not the way the world worked. Alan, what was your first sketch that aired, something that you specifically did that, you particularly remember or surprised you are actually seeing your work going out over the airwaves? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> you, why don't you ask me about my birth? I, I don't, <laughs> you know, um, uh, the first, on the very first show that George Carlin hosted, I may have only had one joke on it, I might have had more, but I know that there was one joke that I wrote for Chevy mm-hmm. that in Weekend Update, which became sort of a signature of that show. And it was, uh, coincidentally, it was a joke that I had submitted to Lauren to get the job. And so I used that same joke in Weekend Update uh, on the first show. I, like I said, I might have had more stuff in the first show, but I remember that, that particular joke was certainly in the show, so it got such a huge laugh, and it was cited in some reviewers' reviews, you know, so that was pretty huge for me. I think the second show that Paul, which Paul Simon hosted, mm-hmm. I think was my first sort of sketch, which was a commercial parody of one of those batteries, you know those batteries that... Uh, a long time ago that showed you how, uh, how how strong they are and how long-lasting. Yeah. There was a commercial back then which took you to uh, International Falls, Minnesota, mm-hmm. and it showed a car, and it was at like 40 degrees below. And the, the Sears uh, Die Hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I had written one about a battery for old people's pacemakers at old National <laughs> Falls, and they were sort of like stooped over and, you know, in a really bad posture. And once they put the battery on, <laughs> they stood up and started skipping or <laughs> something like that. So um, I think that was the first non-sketch that I had on. I, you know, I, I could be wrong, you know what I mean, in terms of, I mean, because I had written something early on for Gilda where she played a parakeet. I don't think that made it into the first show. So it's a little muddled for me, okay? So forgive me. We're here in International Falls, Minnesota, where we purposely left the pacemakers of these five geriatrics on all night just to prove that the Tri-Hard 111 battery can withstand even the most adverse conditions. 
The next morning, all geriatrics have trouble getting started, but not the one with the 111. The Tryhard 111 picks up where your heart left off. You can now purchase T-shirts, mugs, caps, hoodies, wall clocks, and other gifts with the TV Confidential logo from the official TV Confidential merchandise shop. For more information, go to televisionconfidential.com forward slash merchandise or cafepress.com forward slash TV Confidential, cafepress.com forward slash TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash TV Confidential or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415 415- 886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.